Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you today. Uh, really appreciated Pastor Mark taking us through the first three chapters of Romans and uh, really looking forward now to spending some time with you uh, as we work our way through the third installment in the book of Acts. So if you would, please take out the Word of God this morning and turn in it to Acts chapter 13. You remember the book of Acts is right after the four Gospels in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible, turn to page 102 in the back, and you would be at Acts chapter 13. You know, in 1977, 38 years ago, there was a landmark 12-hour mini TV series that came on the television sets in America. That mini series had 100 million viewers. It won nine Emmys, nominated for 37 Emmys, and the finale of that series was, the, to this very day, the third most viewed television program in American history. That miniseries was called Roots. And that series was adopted from a novel by that same name, by a man by the name of Alex Haley. And what he did in his book, Roots, is he traced the roots of his family line. And he's able to track his family line from modern times back to 1750, and he finds a particular relative by the name of Kunta Kinte. And Kunta Kinte was captured by slave traders in West Africa. And then as the story unfolds, Kunta Kinte is brought to the United States, and he's sold into slavery here. And so the book tracks from Kunta Kinte all the way up through another relative who had the nickname Chicken George, and Chicken George was the first of his ancestors to really experience freedom. And the book and the series ends with Chicken George settling in Tennessee just after the Civil War. And so you have some, you know, 100 years covered of time, 110 years covered in time in that book. And for those of you who are young and you think, well, I've never seen Roots, you know, I maybe wasn't even breathing in, in 1977, um, I understand that A&E, the network, is making a remake of Roots, and it should be out next year. Now, now, now Haley, why did he write this book? Why did he take the time to do all this research? Well, I think part of it was... He wanted to understand what his predecessors had experienced. But more than that, just to understand it, I think he really wanted to learn from them and what they had gone through. There's a lot of parallels between Roots and the book of Acts. You know, sometimes we look at the book of Acts as if it was just a book of history, but it really isn't that. It's more than that. It's really our family line, our spiritual family line. And by going back into the book of Acts, we can learn what our predecessors experienced. And we can ask ourselves the question as we work our way through it, what can we learn from them? There are lessons there. 
We've entitled this series, and this, by the way, is the third installment in the series, Seeds, with the subtitle of Plant, Scatter, and Grow. And those terms reflect the three sections, the three installments on the book. The planting of the church happens in the first seven chapters of Acts. The scattering of the church, it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, happens in chapters 8 to 12. That was installment number two. Now we're doing installment number three, which is the growing portion of the church from chapter 13 to the end of the book. And this is where the roots of the church spread. And if we were going to track it all the way through up to today, we would find that the roots of the church have spread eventually to the state of Oklahoma. Now, we're going to have to cover 16 chapters in this installment, and so a lot of the time we're going to be moving pretty quickly. We only have eight messages to do 16 chapters, and some of them are rather long chapters. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14, which involve the first missionary journey of Paul. And some of you might go, oh, missionary journey sounds kind of boring. But we need to remember that the three missionary journeys of Paul, and they're all in the book of Acts, changed the world. They changed the world more than the invention of the wheel. The three missionary journeys of Paul changed the world more than the invention of electricity. So they are worthy of us taking some time to look more carefully at them. When we come to chapter 13, the roots of the church had stretched to a town, a city by the name of Antioch. And as we come to chapter 13, we're some 25 years after Pentecost when the church was born, about a quarter of a century later. And so just by a little bit of background, look at chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there. And so we want to pause for a moment and just think about, we, most of us know about Jerusalem and where Judea and Samaria was, but where was Antioch? And the modern city of Antioch today is Antaka, Turkey, which in those days used to be part of Syria. And if you look at the map we have there and you look at the Mediterranean Sea, Antioch was found at the far northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you let your eyes go down, you'll notice that the far southeastern corner of the Mediterranean is where Jerusalem was and Israel and Palestine. So by this time, the church has grown up to that northeastern corner to the city of Antioch. Now, the city of Antioch was, was very, very significant. It was the number three city in all of the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria. And Antioch, as a city, had three-quarters of a million people that lived there. And it also was a crossroads between the east and the west. You can almost see it there on the landmass, whether people were traveling by sea or by land. It was a crossroads. People would cross through Antioch going across that part of the world. Antioch was an incredible melting pot. There was a heavy emphasis on Greek culture there, on Roman culture there, on Persian culture there, and also on the Jewish culture that was there. And you may not be aware, but Antioch, we could say, was a sin city. Chariot racing was a really big thing. Gambling was a really big thing in Antioch. A ritual, religious prostitution was a really big thing in Antioch. 
And in fact, Antioch in that day was very much like we could say a cross between New York City and Las Vegas. It was, it was an amazing place. 300 feet above the city, there were these natural springs that sprouted a lot of water, and so they built these aqueducts that came all the way down and gave them all the water that they needed. The main street of Antioch was four miles of paved marble, and that street was lighted every single night. It was a very prosperous city, had a lot of spacious homes. Now, now why does God have the roots of the church spread to this city? Some people would say you avoid a city like that. So why did God do that? Why did he bring his church there? Well, obviously, there were people there, three-quarters of a million people. And in a day when there was no internet, no TV, no radio, no cars, no trains, no boats, well, there were some boats, no planes, how was the gospel message going to get out? Well, this was a great place, a great opportunity for the gospel message to spread, to go to a place like Antioch. And we see in the book of Acts the gospel and the church coming to cities. There are some 40 cities mentioned in the book of Acts. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to move pretty quickly here, all right? So you need to kind of batten down the hatches. We're going to fly through a lot of this. We're going to basically do two things. Number one, we're going to look at the action that we see happening on this first missionary journey, and then we're going to take a little bit of a deep breath, and we're going to draw some lessons at the end. So the action breaks down this way. We're going to see some spirit direction in the first five verses of chapter 13. We're going to see some deception that happens in verses 6 to 12. We're going to see a desertion that occurs in verse 13. We're going to see a proclamation by Paul in verses 14 to 52. We're going to see some opposition that arises to the church and the gospel message in chapter 14, 1 to 7. We're going to see some persecution that um, suddenly explodes in verses 8 to 20. And then finally, in chapter 14, 21 to 28, we're going to see some cultivation of the churches that occurs. So are you ready to look at the action. Let's begin by looking at the spirit direction that occurs. And by the way, go back to verse 1 of chapter 13, and when you go there, you're going to find out that in the church at Antioch, there was incredible diversity. It says, in the church there, there were prophets and teachers, and it begins to name them. First of all, it names Barnabas. Remember that Barnabas is a Jew from the island of Cyprus. But not only was he a prophet teacher there, but there was also Simeon who was called Niger. Simeon is a Roman name, and Niger is a Roman word that means dark-complected or black. So you had Barnabas, a Jew, and then you had Simeon, probably an African-American as we would say it today. Then there was Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Greek name, so he had Greek background. And Cyrene is on the west coast of North Africa. Just think about this, how diverse this group was. And then it mentions there another guy by the name of Manian who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, by the way, was the Herod who killed John the Baptist. And this guy, Manian, is a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a prophet and a teacher in Antioch. He was an aristocratic guy. You know, he grew up around the palaces. And then you have also mentioned there as a teacher, Saul, who, of course, is a former Pharisee who had advanced rabbinical training. 
So it just, it just marvels to me how much the church has this diversity in it. And isn't that, isn't that the way it is? I, I mean, you know, one time one person said to me, you know, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we just wouldn't all hang out together, and it's so true. But it's because of Jesus we have this common ground. We have different backgrounds. We come from different economic levels. We are different ages, different nationalities, even different races. But because of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we are a spiritual family together. Well, it's in that diverse environment that's not unlike the environment that we have today um, that basically the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Barnabas, I'm going to call him Barney, and Saul because I have a mission for them. I want the two of them to work together on this. Now, every week we put out a, a series of questions for reflection, and they're going to be on the city, and they'll be on Facebook, and they'll be on uh, our website. And, and those are for you and your family and your small group to just reflect about everything we've talked about and kind of take the Scripture and bring it down into everyday life. And so part of those questions for reflection are going to ask the question, what is the advantage of two people going? I mean, why isn't Barnabas, you go over here, and Saul, Paul, you go over here? But he says, no, I want the two of them to go together. We can reflect on that later. Well, notice it says that they prayed and they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. What's interesting is this is the first missionary journey. There had never been a missionary journey before. Now, people had gone to certain places before, but there had never been a journey where they were going to go here, go there, go there, go there, go multiple places. And so as, as they're being sent out, Barnabas and Saul, there were no seminars that they could attend. You know, before we go, let's take a seminar on missionary journeys. Let's, let's learn about effective cross-cultural ministry. Let's take all that training before we... No, no, no. They didn't have any of that. There was no group of seasoned missionaries who'd been on missionary journeys that they could go to to draw wisdom from all of that. But God said to go, and they went, and they knew that God was going to go with them. We learn at the end of verse 4 that they sailed off to Cyprus. This was Barney's home turf, the island of Cyprus. And we also learn from the end of verse 5 that they took along a helper by the name of John. John is a guy we've been familiar with in, in the book of Acts. We saw him in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. Remember, there was the house in Jerusalem which his mother Mary, who was a very wealthy woman, and she would have the disciples meet in her house. Remember, that's where Peter came when he got released from jail. And her son was John Mark, grew up in a wealthy family, and Jerusalem was around the spiritual action that was happening there. And he goes along with Barney and Saul on this trip. Well, as the action unfolds, it leads us to some deception that occurs in verses 6 to 12. Notice it says they had gone through the whole island, and they find this magician guy, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar Jesus. Now, he was a magician. He was an occultist. He was really a false prophet. And he, it says his name was Bar Jesus. Literally, that means son of Jesus. I don't know what this guy was doing. Was he going around saying, I'm the son of Jesus of Nazareth? We don't really know. But we also find out from him that he was, this guy, with the proconsul, which is really just a governor. Sergius Paulus, and this guy was a man, Sergius Paulus, of intelligence, and 
Sergius summoned Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. So this guy, you see, is with the governor. He's probably part of the entourage. He's the spiritual advisor to the governor. But notice what he does in verse 8. He was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Why would he do that? Well, because he's a false prophet. He's trying to direct people away from the true gospel message. And he's part of the entourage. And he's thinking, man, if this guy comes to Christ, probably, I'm going to lose my position of influence. I'm not going to be the go-to guy. I might lose this prestigious job that I have as the prophet to the governor. Well, then look at verse 9. We actually have two firsts that occur in verse 9. It says, Saul, who was also known as Paul, this is the very first time in the book of Acts that the name of Paul is used rather than Saul. Saul was the Jewish name. Paul was the Roman name. So this is the very first time he's called Paul. By the way, it's the last time in the New Testament he's called Saul. But it's also the first time that Paul asserts leadership. If you go back and you look at verse 2 and you look at verse 7, it was Barnabas and Saul went out. And then when we come down to verse 13, it's Paul and his companions are going on. You see this change that happens, and this is the pivot point where Paul asserts his leadership for the very first time. And here's what he says to this guy this false prophet. He says, you, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? We see our predecessors coming face to face with what? A false prophet who wanted to derail people from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. It's what happened to our predecessors, and it's what still happens to this very day. In fact, Peter picked up on this in 2 Peter chapter 2. And he, he says this, false prophets arose among the people in the Old Testament era, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And he says this, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, these false prophets and false teachers that even we can experience today, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. By the way, you got ideas here of their, their motives, sensuality, and greed. And then he goes on to say this. He says, these, this is from God's viewpoint. This is what he thinks of false teachers. Their stains and their blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, having eyes full of adultery, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, forsaking the right way they've gone astray. And these are springs without water, speaking out arrogant words, promising freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And we have one of our predecessors in the church who comes face to face with one of these. And we still face them today. They are still there today. So notice what Paul says to this guy. He says in verse 11, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You're going to be blind and not see the sign for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon this guy. And he went about, hey, can someone lead me by the hand? I can't see anything. 
Well, what happened to the governor then? Well, the governor believed the message of Jesus Christ when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, the action continues from there, and we have a desertion that occurs. Chapter 13, at the very end of verse 13, it says this, but John, remember, back up in verse 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 38, Paul, looking back on it, says, John Mark deserted us. He said, you know what? I'm going back home. I'm going back to my mom's big house. Now, exactly why did he do that? We don't really know. It's never really told us directly. Um, Maybe he became uncomfortable with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ because that's what the governor was, a Gentile. Maybe he was concerned that his cousin, and Barnabas was his cousin, um, was no longer number one on the team, but now he was taking second billing. I, I don't know if that was part of it. I think maybe more likely was that he, he wasn't experiencing on this trip mass conversions because when he was in Jerusalem, that's what he saw. You know, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ. And in Acts chapter 4, 5,000 men came to Christ. And now here, they've worked their way apparently through the whole island of Cyprus and how many, how many conversions do they seem to have? It seems like there's only one. That's not so spiritually exciting at all. And not only that, we, we think probably a big influence was that there was great danger ahead because they were headed to Pamphylia. Pamphylia was an area where malaria and other diseases were rampant. And it was an area of great rough mountains, and the people that were up in that area were very barbaric. And it just would appear that John Mark goes, you know what, I, I, I kind of think I'm going back home. It seems to me that maybe the core of his thinking was this. You know, God's will shouldn't be, shouldn't be hard like this. It was so easy back home in Jerusalem and all those cool things were happening there. And this is just, this is a little harder than I was anticipating, you know. I just think I'm going home before it gets any tougher. We'll look at more of that a little bit later. But then that leads us as the action continues to the proclamation in verses 14 to 52. Uh, Take a look at uh, verse 14. They arrive at another place called Antioch. This is called Basidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day there, they go into the synagogue and they sit down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials say to them, Brethren, Paul and Barnabas, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, it's important to understand what happened in a synagogue situation. They would read the word of God, and then if anybody who was there had an exhortation to give to those who were attending, there was an opportunity for that, and certainly Paul would be a good candidate for that because he had incredible credentials. He had been actually personally taught by the great, great scribe Gamaliel. So I kind of picture it happening like this. You know, they go into the synagogue, Scripture is read, and they said, hey, brothers, you have anything you want to say to anybody that's here? And I can just imagine Paul turning and looking at Barney and giving him a wink like, here we go. And what we have here is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. 
We're not going to work our way through it. But basically, because he's talking to Jews in the synagogue, he gives them a walk through the Old Testament. And you can kind of track your way through it. When he comes down to verse 23, he talks about Jesus being the Savior. In verses 28 and 29, he talks about the crucifixion. And in verses 30 to 31, he talks about the resurrection. And then down in verse 38, he basically says this, this Jesus of whom I'm speaking is the forgiver of sins. And of course, everybody needs forgiveness. Now, what I find really fascinating is the reaction that comes to Paul's sermon. I want you to see the reaction, what happens. He gives this message on one Sabbath day, verse 44 The next Sabbath day, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. I have been here for 36 years. I've given lots of messages, but never a message where most of the whole city of Norman was assembled the next Sunday to hear what I had to say. But that's what happened to Paul. And one of the things that's really interesting in this whole section here is that there are two different responses to the gospel message. Uh, The first response is found in verse 48. When the Gentiles as a group heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. There was this response of embracing the gospel message and believing in the gospel message. But there was another response that came to Paul's message. Verse 45 When the Jews saw the crowds, and they were filled with jealousy over this, and they began to contradict the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. There was incredible reluctance to embrace the message. Look at verse 15. And the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city. They got to the leading core people, and they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Two different responses to the gospel message. We see the same kind of thing today. You know, some people will receive the message and believe the message and embrace the message, and other people start just pushing you back. Get out of our face. Get out of here. We don't want you living here. We don't want you around here. Same kind of things our predecessors experienced, we can experience to this very day. Well, as the action continues to unfold, then there's some opposition that occurs in the first seven verses of chapter 14. And what happens here is they now go to Iconium. And if you think of that map, they're moving west along the top of the Mediterranean Sea, moving along further and further away from where the church started in Jerusalem. And there, it says, they entered into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you just freeze frame for a moment... Ask yourself the question, how did Jews get up there? You know, all that much north and all that much west. In fact, in that day, if you were going to travel from Jerusalem to Iconium, it would take you probably two months of travel to get there. So how do all these Jews get up there? Well, that's part of the history of the Old Testament the dispersion, the diaspora that happened when the pagan nations came into the land and then they dispersed the Jews out and a number of them landed in this particular area of Iconium and they were a ready-made audience because they were familiar with the Old Testament. I mean, he could just say, take out the Bibles and here we go. 
Well, I want you to notice in, in verse 1, it says that a large number of people believed. There's a large number of people who responded to the message. They embraced the message. We believe in that. We want to follow Jesus. We want him to be our Savior. But again, you had that double reaction. Verse 2, the Jews who disbelieved. Ah, we're not buying into that thing. They stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, and they embittered them against the brethren. Again, you have those two responses to the gospel. Well, what happens? Just like what happens today with the gospel message. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews who were rejecting the message, and some sided with the apostles who were embracing the message. That's what the gospel does, isn't it? The gospel divides people because some people are going to embrace it, some people are going to resist it and reject it, and basically pressure us and even attack us for believing those things. And we're probably going to see more of that going on in our culture in the months ahead, that the gospel will divide even more distinctly. Well, notice it says, uh, an attempt, verse 5, was made um, to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas. But they heard about it, verse 6, and they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and a surrounding reason. I mean, they heard what was happening. They want to put us under a pile of rocks, I think. We'll go ahead and move on to some other cities. But I want you to notice that despite all of that rejection and all of that kind of opposition that they were experiencing, verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. Isn't it interesting what can happen to us sometimes when we face some opposition? It may come from within our family. It may come at work. It may come at school where people begin to just oppose our message and what we have this tendency to do is to sort of clam up, right? And we need to not do that. We need to continue to preach the message and share the message. Well, the action escalates to that of persecution in chapter 14, verses 8 to 20. And as you look at those verses, there's four notable responses that people have to different things in this section that just kind of fascinate me. The first notable response is the man who had been crippled from birth in verses 8 to 10. At Lystra, there was a man there who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb. He had never walked. This guy had never walked his entire life. And he was listening, verse 9, to Paul as he spoke, and they, their gaze kind of locked together. Paul saw that he had faith to be made well, and he said with a loud voice to this guy, stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. Now, we can learn something from going back to our roots. It's very important that we do that. Because what we see in terms of the healing that uh, is laid out here in these verses is very different from many of the so-called healings of our day. A lot of people are running around, oh, this people are being healed, this is this and this. Listen, our predecessors tell us their healings were very different. In the New Testament, when people were healed, they were healed of organic conditions that were indisputable. I mean, nobody can dispute the fact that this guy had never walked his entire life, and then suddenly he's jumping up and he's dancing around. It's an indisputable healing. And the healings that we see of our predecessors, as we go back to our roots, were instantaneous and they were complete. This isn't something that happened over 17 weeks. 
It happened right away. And we can learn something from that because there's a lot of people chirping out there about healings. The next notable response that we see is really the response of the crowd that happens after this event occurs. We see that response in verses 11 to 13. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice and they said in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and they have come down to us. Now, it's very important that we understand a little of the background here. There was an ancient legend that existed in their area. And that ancient legend said this, that in the past, Zeus and Hermes, two of the Greek gods, had decided to disguise themselves as men. And they had come down to this area and this city. This is what the legend said. And when they came down, they sought to have people give them some hospitality and help them to find a place to stay. And the legend says that everybody rejected them. Hit the road, Jack, not knowing who they were except for one aged peasant couple who had almost nothing, and they welcomed these two gods who were in men's clothes into their home. And as a reward, Zeus and Hermes made that couple, that elderly couple, guardians of the temple of Zeus. But what about everybody who refused them? Well, the legend said they wiped everybody out. They just destroyed everybody. So now, when Paul heals this man... They come out saying, here we go again. They're back. Zeus and Hermes are back again. And so they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought in oxen and garlands to the gates. And they said, let's all sacrifice to the crowds for the gods are back again. You know, basically they were saying, you guys are amazing. You guys are awesome. You're just so awesome. We think you're even gods. Now, now let me ask you a question. Is there anyone here who's not interested in some adulation in their life? I mean, we all like a little bit of that. I don't think there's anybody here who's not interested in receiving some praise and some honor, receiving some commendation, we, we have this natural tendency to like flattery. But there's a huge lesson here that we can learn from those who are part of our roots. And that is there is a peril to adulation. Adulation is a danger. It's a danger to the church. It's a danger to ministry. And it can be a danger to individuals. You know, it's really interesting to me how over the years I've heard people talk, you know, this way. They'll talk about, you know, well, at MacArthur's church, or they'll say, well, at, at Groeschel's church, or at Matt Chandler's church, or at Bruce's or Mark's church, as if the church belonged to the individual. And if you're not careful, you can think, yeah, yeah, that is my church. That is my church. You know, every once in a while, uh, someone will come up to me and they say to me afterwards, Bruce, that was a great message. You've got to be careful of the peril of adulation. You know, part of you wants to go, yeah, you're right. That really was. That was a great message. You know, in order to protect myself from that, a lot of times I'll say something like, yeah, but the Word of God is great. 
just trying to be careful of the peril of adulation and what it can bring. By the way, don't feel like you have to say great message to me, all right, uh, after the service. Let's not, let's not do that, although a number of people didn't follow my admonition, and they were telling me that out of fun. So I'll understand if you give me that little um, great message call out. Someone said this, that praise is like perfume. You're supposed to smell it, not drink it. So very true. And there's a real peril to adulation. And I want to illustrate this from somebody in our day who fell victim to it, and that is Tullian Trevigian. I don't know if you're familiar with Tullian Trevigian, but if you're not, he is the 42-year-old grandson of Billy Graham. In fact, his full name is William Graham Tullian Tavidjian. And Tullian, for many years, has been senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in Florida. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a very famous church, a very large church. And on August the 20th of 2015, Tullian filed for divorce from his wife three kids in the family. Problems in their marriage track back to the spring when his wife confessed to him that she had had an affair. And then as they had a little period of separation, he had an affair. And ultimately, that led to his dismissal from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Now, how does that happen? How do you get there? Well, I watched an interview with him, and part of what he shared really was that he fell victim to the peril of adulation in his life. He said, I, I began to believe my own press. You know, I was this big-time spiritual success. I was a pastor of a big church. I wrote books. I was on TV. I would travel around and speak at all these spiritual Bible conferences, and he said, slowly, it just became about me. And the messenger became more important than the message. That's the peril of adulation. We need to be very careful about it. We learn that from going back to our roots. Well, notice the response. Another kind of noted response is the response of Paul and Barney in verses 14 to 19. It says, when they heard of it, remember, this was all happening in the Lyconian language, and all this action was happening, you know, suddenly oxen show up, and all this furor takes place, and they're going like, what's going, where's the translator? Where's the translator? We need to, and when they finally heard about it, oh my goodness, they couldn't believe it. And so they tear their robes, and they go out into the crowd, and they cry out, man, man, why are you doing these things? We're just men of the same nature with you. We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, the one who made the heavens and the earth. Kind of interesting to me, when I look at uh, verse 15, I notice that they do a little different style of gospel message to these people. Remember, remember how when they go in the synagogue, it's like the survey of the Old Testament? And let's just tell you about Jesus being the fulfillment. They, they don't do that. It's a different style, a different audience. They talk about God as being their creator. They're crafting their approach of their message to the audience, and we need to do the same thing. In verse 17, he goes on to talk about how the one I'm talking about is the, your provider. He's the one who provides for you. By the way, that's always a great start with anybody. 
You know, talk to them about God being their creator and God being their provider. And everything they have ultimately is a gift from his hand. Well, then there's another really noted response, and that, that's the response of the hostile Jews. That comes in verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says, but Jews from Antioch, where they had been in Iconium, they came over here and they won over the crowds and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, isn't this kind of incredible? In a matter of a few minutes, you go from being inaugurated as God to being inundated under a pile of rocks. Remember, that's what stoning was. You just got beat up with rocks until you were dead. It goes in a matter of minutes from hail Hermes to hail stone him. And they do that. And we learn in verse 19, Dr. Luke says, they were supposing him to be dead. Now, he's a physician. He would understand what dead is. But he, he wasn't dead, but he was obviously seriously injured. But he's healed in verse 20, and he gets up. You can kind of imagine the spectacle that that causes. He gets up. And he goes back and he enters the city. And I just try to picture the guy, you know, probably all bloodied up, caked on blood everywhere, probably on the ground rolling around. He's got dirt and everything. And he just hops back up. I think I'm going back to the city. We got some work, spiritual work to do. Whoa, 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 whoa. That certainly caused certain things to happen, getting certain people's attention. But, you know, when I come to this part in, in, in the Scriptures, I ask myself an interesting question. Do you remember that there was somebody else who got stoned in the book of Acts? Remember his name? His name was Stephen. What happened to Stephen? Stephen died. He was stoned and he died. Now Paul is stoned and Paul doesn't die. Why? Doesn't seem really fair. Isn't that the way we are? You know, certain things happen to one person and they don't happen to another person. We say, why is that? Why do I have cancer and someone else doesn't have cancer? Why did I lose my job and these other people haven't lost their job? Why am I having all these family difficulties? They don't seem to be having any family difficulties. See, it's very easy for us to go into the why question. But ultimately, the why is bound up in the inscrutable plan of God. In Romans 11.33, Paul says that his ways are inscrutable. That means that I am not privy to the why, and neither are you. We want to embrace the who, but we really never know the why. Then the final thing we're, we're looking at in the action that we have before us is the cultivation of the church in chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. Notice it says in verse 21, after they had preached the gospel in that city they, and made many disciples there, they returned back to where they had been. They went back to Lystra, back to Iconium, and back to Antioch. Why did they go back? Because evangelism alone is not sufficient to develop a disciple. And you can't leave new spiritual babies to flounder for themselves. And I want you to know something. I can say that out of personal experience because that's exactly what happened to me. I trusted in Christ. I was a new spiritual baby, and then I just floundered for years because no one came back to build anything into me. What did they do? 
when they went back? Well, several things. It says there in verse 22, they strengthened them with the word. Literally, that verb strengthen means to make something solid. How do you become solid in your faith? Through the word of God, the preaching, the teaching, the equipping. And that's ultimately what brought me around was having that exposure in my life. Another thing that they did in verse 22 they encouraged them to persevere through difficulty. Notice it says, they said to them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be difficulty in life. We just want you to know that in the spiritual life there's going to be difficulty. And then the third thing that they did to strengthen the disciples in verse 23 is they appointed spiritually qualified leaders, elders in those churches. We know the kind of people that should be from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Now, that's just a lot of action we've covered. So let's just take a deep breath, and let's talk about some lessons we can learn, two of them from everything we've looked at. Number one, here's the first lesson we can learn, is that hardship is normal in the Christian life. Hardship is normal in the Christian life. You know, one reason why people bomb out and fold up in their spiritual life is they're not warned that the spiritual life is not a cakewalk. There's a misnotion that's out there that when you make the right spiritual choices, then your life is going to be trouble-free. It doesn't work that way. The New Testament teaches us that there will be affliction, there will be trouble, there will be pressing problems, there will be crushing circumstances, there will be disease, there will be relational problems. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And we need to realize that hardship is normal in the Christian life. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, his first letter, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, we are writing that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions that you're experiencing, for we have been destined for this. It's part of the calling of a believer. We've been appointed to experience those things in life because they're part of God's molding process. He wants to make me like Christ. He wants to make you like Christ. And, and yet... He's not leaving us alone. He's going to walk with us every step. When we're in the valley of the shadow, he will be there with us. And I believe John Mark learned that, which leads us to the second lesson, and that is don't let failure derail you. Maybe some of us here in some ways are like a John Mark. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you've just failed. You've failed. Maybe you have succumbed to outside pressures. Maybe you've had a spiritual collapse due to difficulty in your life. Maybe you've allowed the focus of your life to slip. Well, don't let failure derail you. I like to call John Mark the comeback kid. We're going to see a little bit more um, next time. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes about this same guy who deserted them. And he says, I think this guy is really useful for ministry. He didn't let failure derail him. Don't let failure derail you. When you're facing failure like that, what we need to do is rely on Jesus. We need to get back up, sort of dust ourselves off and refuse to let failure permanently deflate us in our spiritual life. Because even in our failures, God is perfecting, strengthening, and establishing us. And I just love this so much. 
God is a God of second chances. Oh, believe it. Believe it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this tremendous book of Acts, all the action that's here, the fact that we can go back and learn from our roots, learn from our predecessors. And Lord, you know where we are. Some of us are in the midst of maybe failure. Some of us are in the midst of hardship. But it's so encouraging to know that even when darkness fills our night, that it'll never hide the light of Christ in our life. We want to acknowledge that you are our strength, you are our shield, that you always go before us, you're standing behind us, you're always at our side no matter what we're facing. And so what we want to say to you today, no matter what our life situation may be, is we're just holding on to your promises. Thank you for being who you are. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.